Choosing an energy company raises many questions. Who can make my electricity and natural gas work smarter? Where can I find a company that's easy to do business with, who knows the market best and has options to fit my needs? For millions of homes and businesses, there is one answer, Constellation. Decades of market intelligence and proven solutions from a trusted energy leader. Energy made efficient, simple, insightful, and flexible. That's what makes Constellation America's energy choice. Learn more at constellation.com energy. Welcome to a new edition of the Managing Madrid podcast. This is your host, Kian Sobani. Uh, we are 24 hours removed from Real Madrid being held to zero goals for the third time this season. Uh, this time at San Mames against the struggling Bilbao side. Joining me to break this down and bring calm to our beloved listeners is elite Indian football <laughs> writer, tactician, Om Arvin. Om, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Kian, as co-host once again. Um, I made this, I made a coffee. I'm drinking a coffee. It's, have you ever like just, you really don't need caffeine and it's late at night, but you just want to sip on like the taste of coffee? Does that have happened to you ever? Not, not coffee, but sodas. Oh, it's a completely different taste. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not the same. What do you? What is? What is your go-to though at this time? It's not. It's soda. It's not like a chai. It's not. Uh, you mean right now? Yeah. Uh, juice. Some some type of like berry juice. That's usually what I prefer at at this point in time. So you're so you're so interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I I just like I know we have to dive into this Riamdra discussion at some point. Um, but man, like in the past 24 hours, it's been just a, a complete like swarm of, of, of questions and, and, and trying to figure this out and, and piece things together. Um, and it's gotten to a point where like, I honestly, like I, I mentioned the, the, the goal list draw and, and how Real Madrid failed to score for the third time this season. If you had told me in the summertime that you know, after this crazy scoring run and this crazy scoring streak, that we'd we'd have three goalless games by December, I I would have just laughed in your face. Yeah, I mean, I am surprised because, like you said, we were on such a good scoring streak, and really, with the kind of attackers we have, that no one no one would look at this squad and be like, "Well, that's an obvious problem," right? But it also kind of shows how extreme football can be, right? Because last season, you, you can convincingly argue that like sometimes we got lucky and that maybe the scoring streak shouldn't have lasted as long as it did. And this season, you can also argue that, wow, in, in a lot of instances, we've been unlucky and, and, and you think we should have scored in some of these games. And, and it just kind of shows like just how, how football just waves back and forth. And... I think we're regressing to the mean in terms of the, the finishing aspect uh, as the season progresses, but not necessarily in the way that like we'd prefer it to, right? It's not necessarily that, oh, we're going back to scoring a lot of goals because we're creating a lot of chances regression to the mean, but we're not scoring a lot of goals because we're actually not creating a lot of chances as the season progresses. So, yeah, it it is quite surprising and there's a lot a lot of explanations that one can give for that but i mean some of it is just like that's how football is but you know as we go into it uh as i'm sure we will then we'll discuss how there's a lot more to it than that as well 
Yeah, and I think even there's even what you said, there's a lot there to discuss and break down. And I think a, a lot of this will be addressed during the questions. I think to be clear, I think before we get to the questions, the main talking point is going to be um, going to basically address the main flurry of questions and concerns that came in to this podcast. Um, and, and you and I talked about this and, and several journalists talked about it on Twitter. Some agreed, some disagreed. Some aggressively disagreed, some aggressively agreed, um, is the whole ESCO thing and the elephant in the room. So I think I think one thing that I wanted to clear up on is that I put out a tweet that got shared quite a bit on Facebook and Twitter by various people and so, and and even some publications. And then and I basically said just, it was just an observation. This wasn't a diamond. It was three flat, confused midfielders. And Isco doing whatever he wants. And I also just like, as much as like that was an accurate observation, I think I also wanted to clarify that I'm not criticizing Isco, the footballer, like in a vacuum. I, I don't I don't blame this on him. I think he's tremendously, we know what Isco is capable of. He's an unbelievable, unbelievable player. Um, this exact lineup, maybe with a tweak in formation and, and philosophy, was amazing to end the season last season um, and obviously won us the Champions League final in Cardiff. I I don't think Isco himself as a player, as a human, whatever, he's, it's not his fault. I think there's schematic issues. And I'd be curious to know, like, I don't, I don't know if you're planning on doing a tactical video on this home or not or if you're working on it already, but I'm curious to know what, what your take on this whole thing is. So, yeah, that I think is a super, super important distinction to make. And I think it's a great way to open this podcast because this is kind of the central issue that everyone is discussing right now. And so I was making the same observations as I'm sure you saw. Um, I, I, I tweeted out like a screenshot of like our, our structure in the game and how it's all over the place. And then I didn't see that, but I wish, you know what, I, can I just quickly interject? You did. You left the live tweeting to me yesterday, and my God, is it ever difficult to live tweet, but also take notes on the game. Maybe yeah. I'm just incapable of multitasking, but it was no, impo- I thought it was impossible. It is difficult. It yeah. is difficult. Sorry, um, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I am glad Keon finally understands how difficult my job is. You know, like halfway through the game, I was like, oh my God, I haven't tweeted anything from my personal account. So I just like tweeted something because I felt like, I don't know, I felt yeah, like I-, I had to do something there too. Uh, yeah, you just gotta gotta do a balancing act. So, back back to the topic at hand. Um, yes, we're talking about Isco, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so, we're talking about Isco. I asked you your thoughts on the whole thing and mentioned that Isco, it's not his fault in the vacuum. Yeah. So this was a really important distinction to make, and right. So like I was criticizing that whole idea along with you, and then afterwards I tweeted out, well, to be clear. I'm, I'm not trying to scapegoat Isco here because I love him. He's one of my favorite players. And it's not the player that frustrates me. It's the system that he's being employed in yeah. or, or the lack of system, if you, if you want to say. And, and that's, really, that's really important to, to say because there was a lot of people replying to me like, yeah, I agree. Isco is shit. I'm like, well, yeah. well that's not what I'm saying. So you don't agree with me. Yeah. It's, it, it, this isn't yeah. like a chance, right, to like further your personal agenda that like whatever Isco is a horrible decision maker and that he's actually not a good player and he just wastes our offense. Because um, 
I don't think that's where the evidence leads. I think the evidence leads to Zidane not using him correctly or, or, or imposing enough instructions on him because it's not enough for a manager to kind of just put a lineup on the pitch and then say to one player, like, just do whatever you want. And Zidane should know that Isco is a player that likes to be attracted to the ball. So he's going to move where the ball is rather than him directing where the ball should be, if that makes any sense, right? So if the ball's deep, he's going to come into areas where Casemiro and Kroos clog it up. If it goes to the wings, he's going to move there, when in reality, he should be trying to break lines, position himself in between the lines to help other players break passes, like make make uh, breaking line passes to him. And that we've always kind of known that that's just kind of the player Isco is, and when used correctly, that can be beneficial, right? Because it, it, it enables him to create a lot of good passing triangles when he moves to the flank. But if he has no instruction whatsoever, it's, it's just going to become too much. It's going to become um, kind of like useless, his, his movements, really. It's going to become unnecessary. And that, for me, is really on the coach. At, at this point, given all of the matches we see, I really do think it is an issue of Zidane not really sitting down with Isco and giving him you know, specific instructions as to what he wants to do. Um, <clears throat> I think the, I mean, it last year, this was this formation, uh, although it's not a carbon copy of last year's formation, but it, in terms of the key personnel who were involved in the lineup, it's the same. Things were just clicking on another level and this wasn't an issue. And I, I don't want to go into detail about what was different because we have a question about it. So we'll save it a bit, but you look at Isco in this game, and it's kind of like a recurring thing from previous games too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I felt I felt the way this way against Atletico too, and I didn't really think about it this way. I think kind of what changed it. Like I think it was you and I who had a discussion a few games ago about Isco. We were trying to figure out what it was and and why people are complaining about him. And you pointed out um, just some of the the domino effects of of what of him roaming. You know what they bring, and I think if you look at him in in this game and again and against Atletico too, one of the issues for me is that because he plays in the free role, uh, he's in a different spot on every single defensive sequence. Mm-hmm. And you saw it against Malaga, where on you know on the second goal conceded, but also just leading up to it. I'm not going to pin it on him and say, like, this is a reason why Real Madrid's defense just looks shaky. But if you look at all the players around him, none of them know where Isco is at any given time. They don't know where he is without the ball. So you, you're not entirely sure what your coverage is, what your assignment is, because you have to recalculate it and, and rethink it every possession because mm-hmm. um, you don't know who's around you. And, you. and also, as an outlet, you're not entirely sure where Isco is either. Um, he's really good at what he does. I think, like, I think some of the takes were like, "Yeah, he's 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 terrible." Like, they're completely missing the point when when you when you're talking mm-hmm. about his talent level and saying he's not good. You know, there's no question about his talent level. He's incredible, and um, it wasn't that long ago we see what he's capable of, and we see him in even even in these games where the team's struggling. He's he's got an amazing, um, just an amazing touch, an amazing knack for creativity and flair and tight spaces. I think. The team suffers in other ways, um, and I think defensively they suffer. And the domino effects of that leave a gap in front of the defense and puts a lot on the shoulders of the central defenders. 
Um, and it makes Kroos and Modric look probably worse than they are because they're trying to kind of tread water, trying to figure things out and and keep things binded together. That's something that I'm just surprised we we're not remedying. Like Zidane was kind of candid about it in the in the post game presser, saying that he knows that we need to do a job of better job of scoring. And and you wrote about him like how you think he's wrong, but you know who knows? Like he's just being diplomatic. He's never really going to go into detail about what's wrong. I don't think. But to me, that's just kind of in a nutshell what's wrong with this this formation right now. Yeah, I think that was really well summarized, and. I think it's worth emphasizing the domino effect like you're talking about, right? Like how it affects Modric and Kroos. So not just on defense, right? Because when you want to press, as I said, over and over again, you need to consider what your structure is in possession before you press. You need to be all set up beforehand. It's hard to do that when Isco is all over the place. But also how Modric and Kroos are affected when we have the ball. So like the, the tweet I was talking about that I posted that was a screenshot of our structure, it was Kroos out on the left wing, because Isco was taking his place as the deep-line playmaker receiving the ball from the center backs. So you have Kroos and Modric constantly trying to adjust to what Isco is doing to maintain a kind of structure, a balanced structure across the pitch. And I don't think it's ideal to have Kroos, the best passing central midfielder in the world from deep, sitting out on the left wing because Isco wants to come and receive the ball five yards from our center back that that that's the kind of issues we're talking about right that's what we mean when we say domino effect because it it creates this suboptimal structure and that's what needs to be fixed and obviously there are other things that needs to be done because even when isco isn't playing we're still weak with our press and it's just not all on him but sedan just essentially giving him no instructions whatsoever is is hurting us in a lot of ways well i used to look at it this way and say Isco's free role is beneficial, and I think it. it I think it still can be. Like I don't it can think. Be, yeah, it can yeah. be. Like you see him like in a situation where you just need outlets like constantly, and Isco pops up and like just just allows us to breathe. That's. A, I think that's really conducive to the team's flow. I. The problems that you just mentioned are were very evident against Bilbao. Where like this team, it was just. I th- I thought it could have done better on the counter attack. I understand there were some yeah. good counters in this game. Um. You know, the, I think one was the first ta- first chance of the game where Benzema hit the post. I think Ronaldo did a really good job to win the ball a bit deeper. Uh, he releases releases Isco on the flank, which which you know again that's a really good way of using Isco. He pops up on the counter attack, provides an outlet, puts in a really nice ball to Benzema, controls, hits the post. I don't, you know, that wasn't recurring enough for me. And on other counter attacks, you saw Ronaldo win the ball deep again, and. Or like, or the team's just trying to go on the counter. Ronaldo again somehow has the ball deep, and he's looking up, and his outlet is like Tony Kroos as a left winger, <laughs> and he's never going to catch up to that. He just doesn't have the speed, and he and he just didn't. And and Ronaldo gets frustrated because what else is he going to do in that situation? Like you need, there needs to be some kind of at least consistency and continuity and game plan and rhythm, which I I just don't see it right now. That's you know, um, I think. The questions um, from our patrons will basically cover most of this game. Yeah. So we'll just jump in. Anton Hackberg. Oh, by the way, uh, patreon.com slash managing Madrid. If you're a new listener um, and you like the show, or if you're an old listener, you're, you're starting to really think about contributing, um, go to patreon.com slash managing Madrid. You get different rewards. You can get guaranteed articles 
um, that I will write for you. If you suggest it, you can get guaranteed responses to your questions. You can actually join us on the podcast. You can advertise. Or you can just get no reward and pledge a dollar a month, which is like the equivalent of a Starbucks flavor shot a month that you could sacrifice. Um, we're not asking for much, folks. So if you do enjoy the show, you know, these are careers for us. You know, we do this for a living and um, this is this is how we feed our families and how we how we buy Om Soda. So um, Anton Hackberg, one of our patrons, says, am I making this up in my own head or does Real have a much harder time to break down a parked bus than any other top tier team? What do you so, think? Like, you know, this is like, this is something kind of if you can, you can answer it if you kind of watch teams like, I don't know, City <laughs> play, if you watch Barca play. Um, yeah. What, so are, I've been, what are they doing differently? Yeah, so I've been trying to make a concerted effort to watch more of the the big teams this season, especially because I think there's so many interesting tactical storylines going on there. And so I would say, yes, that especially this season, you could argue, especially since the Hirona match onwards, that we've had a much harder time breaking down park buses than other top-tier teams. Yeah. So Man City, when Pep Guardiola is your coach, you're going to expect that you're going to be the best in the world at doing this because that's essentially what his bread and butter is. I, I mean, he plays in a very specific way, perfect spacing, you know, everyone tries to receive in between the lines, and then it's it's fast one touch passing up the pitch to destabilize defenses, and it's all very measured. And kind of everyone knows just how good he is now. So there's no question that we're worse than Manchester City. But even if you're looking at PSG, if you're looking at Barcelona, we're still worse. And I think it has to do a lot with what we're discussing, right? It's this idea that we have Isco who roams all over the place and that leaves no one taking up these positions in between the lines. Because if you want to break down a park bus, you need to, to occupy spaces that somehow attracts defenders or occupy spaces that allows you to break lines because that's what football is nowadays. It's, it's structured lines of, of men that you're trying to bypass. And you can't do that if you don't have players who are receiving the ball in, in, in dangerous areas. And, yeah, that's essentially what we're what what we're we're failing to do, and that's why we're we're having to like swing the ball out wide and just randomly cross into the box, and that's also why we lead all of Europe's top teams in crosses per game. So, it's it it, it sounds what I'm saying is basic, but the, the the idea I'm talking about is basic. That's what you need to do. There are several ways to try to do that, and it's not necessarily as easy to do as I'm saying, but right now we're doing that really poorly. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, I think, you know, I think a lot of what you said rings true. I mean, when you look at the kind of the way, by the way, that stat of the the crossing stat, it still blows my mind. Like I discovered it, um, I don't know, a few weeks ago, and I thought it was the, the highest mark in La Liga. But then someone pointed out it's actually the highest mark in Europe. So crosses per game, 27. It's 31 crosses at home, 23 away from home, which is, you know, semi-interesting. I don't know why it's less away from home. But um, you watch... You watch kind of like Pep style and the way City get out of a press, uh, the movement and spacing from certain players, uh, the way De Bruyne kind of drifts to the right a bit um, and, you know, how well he can cross, but also like just like his touches and his decision making is so good. There's like a clear system to it. 
And Mm -hmm. I know that this is, maybe I'm taking crazy pills bringing up this example. (laughs) But but even when I watch Arsenal, (laughs) who in many ways are just kind of like a disaster and um, they are what they are. It's interesting to see the contrast in style, like how they almost refuse to go to the, to the flanks. But when they do, they do, but, you know, not nearly as much as Real Madrid does. But, like, you look at the patience that they are just going through the middle and recycling possession. Um, I'm not saying Arsenal are a better offensive team than Real Madrid, and, you know, we know what Real Madrid are capable of. But it amazes me that we, we don't really have that kind of patience this season. It feels like we're very direct in our approach, and it's a very forced kind of directness where the goal is to get the ball to a certain area on the pitch. And when you get there, you hit it into the box. That could be a, a, almost like an angled cross from a fullback. It could be one down the touchline where it's a pullback. But it's never like, oh, there's nothing on. I should pull it back and recycle possession and just kind mm-hmm. of pass the ball around and recycle it. We have brainiacs like Isco, Modric, and Kroos. Um who really have amazing patience. And by the way, like, um, who's the guy in Twitter? I don't know how to pronounce it. Eleven Tegan? Is that, I've never said that name out loud. Is uh, that's that, how I say it. I, I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's how I say his it name. It could be Eleven Tegan. Tegan? <laughs> Tegan? Um, when he, he posted the passing network, um, it actually dawned on me that we that some of our better sequences, I thought, were between Modric and Carvajal. And we barely used it. Like it was, everything was Marcelo, Kroos, and Isco. And you know, every time I thought Modric kind of just pulled the ball back a bit, try to find openings. Carvajal makes a run down the flank. It was on, and it was dangerous. You know, to me, like that's the kind of patience we need. I I feel like you know sometimes we just rush into it a bit, where we're just we're too capable and and too smart and too talented to just. I think maybe we have an extremeness in our directness, if that makes sense. I would agree with all of those things, but also add a slight justification maybe for that because mm-hmm. it's all well and good, right, to like be patient, but if the opening never appears, then players are going to get frustrated. And I think when you look at the way Kroos and Modric are, are, are looking to break teams down, they're always looking for, for proper openings. And the problem is is that they never appear, right? Like, no one is ever moving in between the lines. And if they are, it's like these sporadic movements from Ronaldo and Benzema when you want, like, for example, Isco to be there or even Modric and Kroos to be there at, at points and times. And it's just not there. So Modric and Kroos are thinking, well, this is never going to appear. So if we're going to have an opening, we better we better do it instantly while the defense is in some some kind of moment of transition and those are obviously going to be low percentage opportunities and they don't work out most of the time so patience i agree we need more of that but we also need something to reward that patience because i think even if we were to be more patient in possession nothing would necessarily change because we don't have the necessary offensive positioning to capitalize on that What's the remedy for that? More runs off the ball? More horizontal runs and cutting? So I would say we need to fix our our possessional structure. So Isco, as I've been mentioning before, Isco needs to stick in between the lines. And I, 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 don't, think, I don't think it's wrong for him to roam because I think it's good for him to move to flanks to flank to, to create these kind of triangle passing combinations. 
but he he also needs to sit in between the lines because if he just sticks to the flanks, right, teams will just send another player to to negate the overload that Isco provides. So let's say he moves in this horizontal space that is constantly in between the the midfield and defensive block. I think that would be really useful, right? Because then he's the the defensive line in front of him constantly has to keep turning their head backwards to look where he is. And the the line behind him needs to compress because Isco is constantly there, and then that opens space for Ronaldo and Benzema to run in behind. So it's not just Isco, right? Because you know Ronaldo and Benzema, and Modric and Kroos should, can also do that. But if we're playing a diamond, that's primarily Isco's role. And then we can kind of do the thing where Isco will move out to the left, and maybe Modric kind of swings in from the other side and sits in between the lines. But really, it kind of relies on our structure. Um, of how of how we want to reward patience and possession. This is a good transition to the next question. So I'm going to read the next two questions because they're, they're kind of intertwined. So Sayantan Nandi says, is it time to tell Ronaldo that he must play as a number nine considering the fact that he and Benz both clog the box and trip over each other? Essa Hariri says, can you please explain the main problem of our team? Is it that the strikers are not passing to each other? Um... There is no communication between attackers. They are too passive. And would Bale's return solve anything? I feel like every freaking team knows how to play against us no matter how bad they really are. So, um, I kind of, um, I kind of, I made this parallel like a few, a few weeks ago, I think. You know, like in FIFA where you can, you can go on like a 50 game run of winning and you feel like you're invincible. You can do nothing wrong. And then no matter what you do, you lose like 15 straight and you don't know what's the problem. I feel like Real Madrid are in a rut like that. Uh, except in FIFA, you can't really understand because it's just it's just the game is screwed. It's flawed. <laughs> um, but like we can actually like pinpoint things that are happening here. The Ronaldo-Benzema thing is interesting because if you look at their passing network, it's literally zero. They just, they didn't connect with each other. Um and I, to me, that is like completely the opposite of those two. Like traditionally, it it's it's not some it's not normal for them not to be so out of sync. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's that's why when when I I got a lot of like tweets at me like that were similar to this that are talking about the problem is is that Ronaldo kind of doesn't understand the role that he's supposed to play as a number nine and. I, I, that sort of confused me because in, in, from the way I've always seen it, Ronaldo and Benzema up top is the perfect position for both of them. And we've seen that since the Ancelotti era, that they're perfect. When those two play together up top, they understand each other so well and they know what to do. So for it to suddenly now be that Ronaldo doesn't understand how to play this position doesn't make any sense to me. I think this goes back to the domino effect of like Isco going where he wants to, right? Because if there's a lack of presence in between the lines, who are the next player's best position to solve it? It's the strikers, right? So I think the deal is that both Ronaldo and Benzema are trying to like adjust to to, to the lack of Isco's presence in, in the areas um, in between the lines, and they're both kind of trying to do it, and they're both kind of getting confused by Isco not being there. And that's kind of, you know, causing them to kind of run into each other's spaces and focus because because when a player moves in between the lines, what he's trying to do, right, is usually he'll receive, he'll either turn and, and, and look to play a pass out wide, 
or he'll just kind of ping the ball back to the to, to the defender, just kind of probing and testing the defensive blocks. And when Benzema and Ronaldo are, are focused on doing that, they're not going to have really opportunities to connect with each other, right? So that that really explains the confusion that these players are experiencing and also kind of this feeling that Ronaldo and Benzema aren't really living up to what we expect of them and why they look so confused in positions that they're normally extremely comfortable in. Um, I mean, it's not even just that... Um, like, to me, it's... To me, that, to me, neither of them are playing as a nine, even though that's where they're kind of positioned. And it's it's like a kind of a four for two, but it's not. And it's kind of a diamond, but it's not. It's kind of like, it's it's definitely not stagnant. And you, you can kind of tell like how much Ronaldo and Benzema drop deep in, in this scheme. Um, and neither of them are traditional strikers. But I think one of the things is like, they just don't get the ball in a goal scoring position unless it's from a cross. Yeah. There's, I think, like you see Modric with a with one or two through balls, uh, but other than that, Ronaldo and Benzema are going to touch the ball only if they drop deep to win possession. Um, they're not getting any through balls, and basically the scheme is still like Isco was not getting the ball to them really unless he was on the yeah. flank. So I don't know. This to me, this goes back to Sayantan's question: Is it time to tell Ronaldo that he must play as a number nine? I don't know how we haven't gotten to this stage yet. It's so clear to me that I think this would solve so many problems with just a little shift. <laughs> if we just... Like, I, I don't buy the idea that Ronaldo doesn't know how to play as a nine. We've seen him do it before. We've seen him do it. Like, as a, as a striker by himself, he can do it. I don't, know, I don't know if he likes it. You know, like, we've been told that he doesn't like playing there. I don't care. Like, he's good at it. He can do it. And I think if you sacrifice Benzema for an extra midfielder, an extra presence to help this whole chaotic midfield and people disappearing and not knowing where to be, I think that would be a huge help. By the way, Andra Paul tweeted this earlier today. It's a chart of our goals and our expected goals by player. Ronaldo has two goals. His expected goals is 8.3. Benzema has two goals. His expected goal is 5.2. Our two most efficient players this season. Asensio, four goals. Expected goals, 2.1. Isco, four goals. Expected goals, 4.5. And, you know, like, I don't think we can, you know, so many of the, so much of the narrative this season has been that these guys are the problem. I, we seen them play together without, you know, even a, a pure nine with Spain, and they've looked unbelievable together. I think we we just need to freshen things up with a fresh idea. I think Zidane has been playing this scheme for a while. The scouting report is out. I think it's time to just shake it up a bit. Um, I think there's a fine line of continuity and rhythm. At some point, you hit a threshold where it becomes insanity. I think we need to shake things up, put Ronaldo up top, and pack it with that extra midfield. It doesn't have to be Asensio. It doesn't even have to be Isco. We have Kovacic who who is like could have been a huge help like earlier in the game even you know with his ball carrying ability when our counterattacks were laboring the gap in front of the defense. I think we're at a stage now where the question that Sayantan poses is is it time to tell Ronaldo to go up and play as a nine? I think I think it's overdue. Um, I mean, 
I, I don't know if I took that question that way. I thought he was talking about, like, in this context of, like, the four four two diamond and, you know, not that, like, Ronaldo wasn't positioned as a 9, but, like, Zidane had told him to be a 9 and he just didn't want to do it. But I, I think that what you brought up is interesting regardless because I'm in favor of ditching the four four two diamond at this point in time, honestly, because I don't prefer how how it affects us defensively because I never thought we pressed that well in the four four two diamond because we don't cover the flanks that well. But for me, the key issue, so while I'm not opposed to moving away from it and doing something fresh, like you said, the key for me is, is you can play whatever formation you want, but if the, the structure isn't right, it, it won't matter, right? So like, let's say we play, like go back to a 4-3-3 and we make Ronaldo the striker. If we don't have presence in between the lines, it's going to be like Ronaldo isn't a striker anyway because he's going to either move in between the lines or shift out to the flank to get touches of the ball. Because if you saw, if you looked at uh, the touches for all the players uh, versus Athletic Bilbao, you had like crazy numbers for all the midfielders. You had like Isco, Modric, Kroos. They were all like 90 to 100 touches. The fullbacks were 100 touches. The defenders were a lot. And then you look at Benzema and Ronaldo and they're like 35. And Kaylor Navas was 32. And that's the problem. They're not getting the ball because we're not putting the we're not putting the ball in areas that are are beneficial to them in certain areas, right? So like it, them having to like kind of move all over the place instead of the final third is obviously going to affect their ability to get the ball. Like they're moving deep and they're still not getting the ball. So that's an issue. And so I I, I do think there there can sometimes be a problem with Ronaldo not wanting to play as a nine and all of that, but it's not going to matter if if we don't have the necessary structure to support Ronaldo as a number nine, because eventually he's going to move where he needs to in order to get touches of the ball. And it's not like Zidane can be like, well, just go there and stand up top and just sit out the whole game without ever impacting anything. No player is ever, ever going to do that. No, and no, no, should they? It makes no sense. But, you know, like the touches per game. I mean, we know that strikers just touch the ball less. Like that's like, that's, that's like a truth. Yeah. But again, it goes back to the fact that, you know, we you can touch the ball less as a striker. That's fine. But as long as those touches you're getting are, are in goal scoring positions or in positions to create for others. And I think that's where we really haven't seen the, them this season. Again, like, it's crazy, but Gareth Bale solves so many problems. I... It's almost like just I don't know how much more we can talk about it and say it. It's it's crazy that we just never get to see him. Um, I mean, you look at his expected goals. Like his is two out of three, um, which is, was a smaller sample size. But even like him, like out of the three of him, Ronaldo and Benzema, I think he, that is the most unlucky number because his chances, uh, like the ones against Betis, were like almost certainly gonna go in. That he just had some bad luck. But. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting because, like you mentioned, that that Ronaldo and Benzema aren't getting the balls in the right areas up front. Like people will look at the expected goal numbers and say, "Well, it looks like they are." And I think it's worth mentioning that for a portion of, especially the beginning of the season, they definitely were. As a whole, we were playing quite well. We were we were creating like three expected goals per game, which is kind of insane. And Ronaldo and Benzema simply just they just weren't finishing their chances. But ever since the Hirona match. 
it's not been the case. It's yeah. like I said, the the trend has like it's it's regressed to the mean, not because the finishing has got better, but because the chance creation has gotten worse. So I think recently it's very very accurate to say that Ronaldo and Benzema the, the service has just dropped off. Whereas at the beginning of the season it was actually quite good, and that's where most of the like the the poor goal to xG ratio comes from. Um, so like a, as we said at the beginning, there's like so many reasons for why we are where we are and not all of them are connected but the more recent reason is is what you were saying that they're not necessarily getting the ball in the best areas i mean the expected goal for this game was 1.38 which is yeah. basically identical to bilbao's and and that was mostly from like i think 0.41 of that was a varan header that was blocked and yeah i was kind of like... surprised about that one i won't lie i i thought that I'm I'm surprised at kind of how that was evaluated because well, um, to me Benzema's was much more clear cut than others perceived it to be. Well, because like for well because there's like because there's like kind of like a thing happening in the XG community now where there's like there's the the current way it's done the Opta method which is what like eleven taken eleven Michael Cayley and Understat um, all follow which is they don't take into account the presence of defenders. And then there's Stratabet data, like they've created a new method which takes into account not just the number of defenders in between the shot and the goal, but also defensive pressure. And there's, there's a couple other changes which you can read online, but like it's not necessarily relevant to the discussion here. And so if I, I'm assuming, but I haven't seen um, their XG chart on this because they, they need individual like journalists to go out and use the data to build it. Um, I'm assuming that that chance would be valued a lot less because there was a defender right in front of that shot. Um, but the reason Benzema's shot was valued at basically at 1 out of 10, um, a chance of going in, is because it was a cross, first of all. It was because he had to take it down on his chest, and it was also a volley so with, with his weaker foot, which are all factors that are taken into account, and... When you think about it, like it being a, kind of a one out of ten chance, that makes sense to me. Especially if you were to take into account that there were defenders in front of the goal, which the which the model that we're citing wouldn't wouldn't have done. I think I think one out of ten is pretty fair because he was also back put backpedaling, had to receive the ball in his chest, and then he had to volley it instantly. And I thought he did pretty well to get up the post. So it's not it's actually not a horrible chance, but I would agree that it was pretty difficult. Bavik Shah says, "What's up, troops?" I don't even want to start how frustrating this period is for all of us. After watching Arsenal versus Man United, I fell in love with De Gea all over again. It would be great to see him in our colors. So many times during the match, I felt that the entire Arsenal team was playing against De Gea. What a player. Hashtag can't read Zidane's mind, but I still hope he stays. Hala Madrid. De Gea was unbelievable <laughs> in that game. Um, I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but I think, I think Kepa's going to be the guy for us. Just in yeah. terms of realistically, like price tag, the contract situation, uh, Man U also being better this season. To me, it's going to be a Kepa signing. I mean, I wouldn't mind Kepa because I think he's a good player. But if you didn't say, if you didn't see De Gea's performance, go and watch the highlights of his saves because that's one of the best footballing performances I've ever seen. Period. Not. Not goalkeeping performance, just football perform- footballing performance, just period, because he was absolutely magnificent. He essentially saved Manchester United from what could have been a really, really embarrassing loss. Because Arsenal's expected goals was like 4.5 or something, 
and they would have scored those goals if it wasn't for De Gea making incredible save after incredible save. So, um, you, you and I talked about that game a little bit. It was amazing to me how much... Uh, yeah. People how much were really the, praising Man United when they actually weren't playing that well. Yeah, I, I just don't think... I mean, the commentators were like, at one point, they was like, this is the Man United of old, this is amazing. <laughs> I, to me, like, neither team really played that well. I, yeah. Arsenal were crazy bad, like giving the ball away in their back line, making mistakes, mm-hmm. uh, which man knew credit to them. They were really efficient, at, you know, high up the pitch and took advantage of it. Like, they, I think, what, how many shots they had? Like, three shots or something? It's crazy. Um, and defensively, they bunkered up, but they weren't really, like, that compact either. Yeah, it's like, because what Mourinho, it's like, this, there's this thing with Mourinho now because he's had really good defensive performances in the past that any time. Uh, a Mourinho team parks the bus, as people say. People are like automatically, oh, what a great defensive performance, whether he concedes a lot of chances and gets lucky or not. Um, because the way he parked the bus, if you watch that game, yeah, sure, he had a lot of defenders between them and the goal, but none of them were pressuring the ball, and Arsenal were getting the, the ball into the box and creating chances at will, especially for like the first 20, 25 minutes of that second half where, where they went, where they just went crazy. That's not a good defensive performance. It sure is a great goalkeeping performance, but just conceding chances left, right, and center and having your goalkeeper bail you out is not a good collective performance. Yet people look at the scoreline, they're like, oh, it's 3-1, and Mourinho parked the bus. That means you know, the way he did it today, that justifies like what he did. I mean, parking the bus can be a justifiable way of playing, but you have to do it right. And on that day, like Mourinho just didn't do it correctly, and he got... A lot of unnecessary or undeserved praise because of it. De Gea was amazing. Nice to see that um, someone at least can grow a ponytail and not decline, like most <laughs> players who grow their hair. Um, question from Christopher McCormack, another patron. He says, so I went into a drunken coma in June and just woke up. Explain to me how we have suddenly forgotten everything we were doing well last season. So... And it's not actually, I mean, when was the Super Cup? Late August, early September? Yeah. Um, even if you went into a coma then, I think you'd be crazy to wake up now and just see what's going on. The press has, is completely disjointed and broken. The transition defense has been terrible. A lot of bad giveaways in the back line, even like not even, sometimes pressed, sometimes unpressed, unforced. Finishing has been bad. Uh, the team is out of sync. Bale's been injured. What am I missing? Um, I mean, you're getting all the schematic things correctly and all the little nuts and bolts, but also like the fact that last season we were we were just frankly a little lucky in some circumstances, <laughs> which which you need you need to win. Like it's nothing to scoff at. Every team who wins like uh, trophies, like Champions League back to back, wins a league title in addition to the Champions League, gets a little lucky. But we simply were right. Like tons and tons of late goals that would cover up mediocre performances. You know the whole winning ugly thing which again you need we're just not doing that that season right like Zidane said this like five times in his press conferences now last season we would have scored a goal maybe when we didn't deserve it and that's not happening this season and you know that's that's part of it um it's definitely not all of it um the you know what what Keon just mentioned was a huge part of it but also the, the luck factor and us being kind of lucky that season and not having the same luck this season 
you know, like it would be interesting to see where the last season's team would be if we weren't getting those late goals to save us. I mean, yeah. it's essentially we'd be in the same position we are now, I think. Yeah. I think it's just weird to me because while the first half of the season was a bunch of luck factored in, at the, the end of the second half was a lot better. Yeah. yeah I, I think, like, you could argue there was, I mean, the team, it was purely on merit. It wasn't luck at all, like what happened at the end of the season. Um, and if that, if the team turns it around at the end of the season, fine. But the the whole dug now is a bit deeper than last season. Yeah. Although, lot. like, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> to me, like, it's, it's still not over. I this is this is the crazy thing to me. Like, as good as La Liga has been, you know, the other teams have gotten better this season. And as, as good as Barca have been result wise, and and some of the eye test has been good with them too. I think I just I still think it's not over. I think it's crazy to say, given how Real Madrid have looked, but it's like almost like to a point where I don't see it getting worse. To you, I mean, I, I think the reason you say that is because we had the opportunity, right, to take points from Barcelona. But I, I don't know, man. I guess I'm just really pessimistic right now. But Real Madrid kind of has this history of like, well, it's not over, and all the players will say, we'll fight to the end, and then when the time comes and Barcelona slips up, we blow it. And we did that. We did that right now. And I, I think it's just the margin for error just keeps getting slimmer and slimmer. Like this for me was an absolute must win, if if we want to get in the title, like get back in the title race. Because what you can say right? Because we said Barcelona is going to hit a slump of form soon. Well, they have hit a slump of form. Two draws in a row is a pretty rare thing usually for for Real Madrid and Barcelona to experience, and we haven't taken advantage of it. So. I, I don't know, like, I, I mean, I guess it's good to be optimistic, but, like, I'm not, I'm not really getting my hopes up. So, November, you know, we can say this about every month. November was a huge month because Barca had Sevilla and our schedule was a bit easier. So, in November, we basically caught up two points, um, which was the when, when Barca dropped in Valencia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like, we didn't make a dent, but we didn't also lose ground because we both earned a draw this week. December is huge because we have Sevilla, who are obviously just in time rounding into form. Um, and then we have the Classico. If we win both Classicos, I think there's reason to be optimistic. But it's, when was the last uh, time we've done that? I can't remember. I don't. Yeah, exactly. Like it just doesn't happen, right? Like it would it, it would have to be like a miracle in, in in some in some ways. So it's it's kind of. It's kind of weird to have to rely on that. Like I, I, I don't, I don't think even Zidane can expect that from his players. Like he, he can do everything perfectly, and there could still be a pretty low probability of us winning both classicals because of how like tightly contested they usually are. So, yeah, I mean that's the only way back for me. We have to take six points of Barca that way, and you know it, it may seem unreasonable for me to ask for that, but like that's the that's. If we put ourselves in this position, we have to do extraordinary things to, to get back in the race and win it. The same weekend we host Sevilla Barca are way to Villarreal. Maybe like I, I don't I don't think it's inconceivable they drop points there because Villarreal's in a slump right now, but Bakambu and Baka could manhandle Vermilion a bit. Umtiti's still out, he's gonna be he's gonna miss the classico too. Um and they'll they'll also um like they'll have a We'll have a game in hand because 
they also play Depor, and because we're doing the Club World Cup thing, I don't think we're playing our Leganes game. So we're going to be further back with a game in hand, which kind of psychologically also can kind of suck. Um, where are we at? What are we talking about? Um, <laughs> uh, it was the We were talking about the... Co- the coma oh, the question. Coma. Okay, so next question is from Nate McDougall on Patreon. He says, what an absolute joke. This is not really a question. This is more of a statement. Um, but he has. But Nate uh, deserves this to be read. Um, and if you have anything to add, just, just chime in. If not, we'll move on after this. So Nate says, what an absolute joke. A chance to go within six points of Barca and you piss it away. The Real Madrid of last year would have won this game, no doubt in my mind. Without Morata and Hamas, we have no one to bring in when Benzema is being Benzema. And Ronaldo's age is starting to show. I love Ronaldo, but those Morata and James, uh, but Morata and James were a safety valve last year. And when things just weren't going right, main point is yes, 33 league trophies is awesome, and uh, it ties Juventus for most of any domestic league titles. But Barcelona owns us since Messi got here in 2005. They dominate Spain, and we just sit there and take it. I want this team to do well and be better, but it's extremely frustrating watching them throw away every very needed points like this. I mean. We talked about the James Morata thing like a million times, but I think it's kind of true that like anytime Barca drops points, there is this kind of like this psychological barrier among fans anyway, like where it's like do are we really going to take advantage of this or is this just another another dud? Yeah, I, I I definitely feel that. Like I feel the general sentiment in that in that comment a lot, like the frustration at us not taking advantages uh, advantage, advantage of like Barcelona slip ups because if you look at like a lot of these league title races, aside from the 2012 13 one and the 15 16 one where we were never really in it, I, I look at all those and I think, well, we really could have won those league titles, and there were these crucial slip ups in clutch moments yeah. where we didn't do it. Um, I, I just want to quickly talk about the Hamas thing because, yeah, we have talked about how like losing Morata is a loss, but I don't. I don't really get where this idea is coming from that Hamas was this huge part of our league title win and he was coming off the bench and, like, I don't know, saving us because that just feels like revisionist history to me because there were, like, two moments where Hamas played really well and I think won us points, but it wasn't more than that because the general narrative was that Zidane wasn't playing Hamas at all and he was getting no time, which which was the correct assertion because he wasn't. Like, Hamas was... Ha- wasn't really key at all. Morata definitely he saved us a ton of points, but this people are trying to are, people are trying to like now expand the list of players that we lost that were really key. Next, people are going to say Mariano because there was one game where he scored a crucial goal. Like Hamas wasn't, and we have replaced Hamas. We got Ceballos, a player that can play in central midfield. Like the reason Hamas didn't play is because Zidane's like, well, he's not a central midfielder, he's not a winger, so. He doesn't fit my system, and we got Ceballos, who plays in central midfield and can do a lot of the things Hamas does. Now, Zidane's not necessarily playing him a lot, but we have replaced Hamas in the roster. In fact, Ceballos' position is a lot like Hamas' last season. Both weren't getting a lot of minutes, and a lot of people are saying, well, if you played them, they could make an impact. So I, I think people need to stop this like idea that Hamas was a safety valve type player because he could have been and I'm not saying he doesn't have the ability to but the fact was he wasn't because he hardly played um yeah n- next people are going to say Cohen Trow the reason Cohen Trow <laughs> uh I will say this about James um I thought he played really well in his limited minutes like I 
yeah, yeah. He he definitely wasn't a huge factor in anything. Um, but he definitely played well. Yeah, every time he came on, I thought he was impressive. Um, and I and I did feel bad for him because he didn't really like kind of sulk or you know like complain about it. He seemed like just like a nice guy. Like we often forget, like two years ago, three years ago, he was a fan favorite. Everybody loved him. Yeah, everyone thought he was going to be in this lineup for like the next six seasons. Yeah, I I did too. Like I called it. I was like, "There's no way we can build this team without him. He's he's too good." Um, but I mean, a lot of these issues we're running into this season are not depth issues. They're there are it's our own set of gala it's our starting 11 that steamrolled teams last year just not doing it and um, i mean I, I think the idea that right like that super subs could cover for for our problems i mean that's valid because they did at the beginning like the first half of last season but also like you shouldn't need that right like we still have really good players on the bench but if you if, if your like conclusion is that you know, screw the the plan or whatever. We need super subs to save us. Like, I don't know how sustainable that really is, right? Like, the the first kind of thing you should go to is look at the the game plan with our starting eleven and look at all of that. Like, I get maybe replacing some players in the lineup, but if people were expecting like super subs to save our season again, like the likelihood of that happening would be very very low. Like, I wouldn't expect that to happen two seasons in a row. I mean, look, every team needs that, but yeah, um, I don't, I, I, I can't use the Hamas thing as an excuse. Yeah, Isco and Asensio play that position, and they're and Asensio's come up with a lot of, a lot of goals. No, Asensio has been great off the bench. Yeah, I, I yeah. think, uh, but I mean, you have Isco and Asensio, and also you mentioned Danny Ceballos is kid, like. That is good depth. We have great depth there. I definitely see the argument of not having more Atan Mariano, yeah. though. That that is a legitimate, yeah. legitimate argument. But also, like, yeah, Zidane could have played Morata more, but also Morata didn't want to stay. So after the season ended, there was nothing we could do to make Morata like like stay. Right? Like he just wanted to go, and you know, respect to him, he's doing brilliant at Chelsea. But it's it was even if Zidane had played him more, I'm not sure he would have stayed because. He wants to be a D guy on a team because he's good enough to be that guy. And you can argue we should sell Benz we should have sold Benzema to like keep Morata, but like that was never gonna happen. Like just yeah. in no way was was that ever gonna happen because Zidane not just Zidane likes Benzema, but also Florentino Perez loves Benzema, so that that's just unrealistic. But I think that's the argument essentially, is that's how you yeah. keep Morata and um in my opinion, I think we should have done it. I Lucas Navarrete hates when I say this. He hates it when I say this. But um, I think if you choose between Morata and Benzema, like I think you'd have to. If you go back and look ten years from now, you might look at that and say we made a mistake. Like that that changed a lot of things. I'm not saying it's going to really affect us that much long term because you know we have money. We might sign a great striker anyway, but. And it's not because I don't like Benzema and it's not because I don't think he's great and I think he's amazing and, you know, what he's done for the club. I think age is the biggest factor. I think you yeah. just have to look at the age difference and be like, well, you know. Anyways. Um, yeah, I mean, the depth thing is, it's it's kind of, it is, it is what it is. I, I just don't think that's the main issue at this point. Yeah, it's... It's not a huge problem in my opinion because 
we still have the best, if arguably the like second, third best like squad depth in the world. Like it's better than Man City's, in my opinion. Um, it's definitely better than FC Barcelona's. Yet they're ahead of us. So yeah, I think it contributes in a slight way, but it's it's kind of become a scapegoat of a problem because like every time we don't do well, I have people tweeting at me, well, our depth is not good enough. Like compare this team to the to the team we had in 2011-12 or 2010-11 or even the Ancelotti era. Yeah. Our depth is way better. Um <clears throat> the next question is really interesting. Um Solomon Ortiz says, "Oh no, sorry. I'm I'm skipping one. <laughs> the next one is actually a statement says from Abinab Podar. He says, "I fucking hate Raul Garcia." I fucking hate him as well, man. I uh him and Jordi Alba I don't know. There's got to be another one that would complete the axis of evil. What is Diego? Diego Costa. I think Diego Costa is not on the level of Raul Garcia and Jordi Alba. I don't know, man. I still remember this pure, like the only real memory I have. Diego Costa, Atletico Madrid, is just this feeling of pure rage when I think about that time period. So I don't know, man. I when when he comes because like he can't play for Atletico Madrid until after the winter break, right? Mm-hmm. So when he joins, I think he'll remind us pretty quickly why exactly we hated him so much. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, Solomon Ortiz says, could Real Madrid pull off a 3-4-3 or a 3-5-2? Who would be your starting 11 formation with a three-backline variation? Do you think Zidane would even consider this at some point? So, um, I think this is interesting because I think we all have terrifying memories of the three-man backline. Uh, because you remember Casemiro there at Balaidos, and it generally has been a disaster. And I don't think if we like went to it or would look like all of a sudden look like Chelsea or Man City, um, it's not going to happen. Um, and it would be an experiment; it would be a one-off thing. And I, don't, I, don't, I personally don't think it would make sense to just experiment that. I also yeah. would say this: I think with Vallejo. It might work because I think Vallejo is kind of like built in a th- for a three-man backline. I think he would do really well there. You could put Marcelo and Carvajal as the f- you know far wing backs. Uh, so you'd have Vallejo, Varane, Ramos, and then Carvajal and Marcelo. I think that actually could work, but I just I I could never see it happening, and I don't trust Zidane to do it correctly. I think he would probably put Casemiro back there and, and something <laughs> stupid. Um. I mean, I the three five two could theoretically work. Um, like you said, we could play Vallejo there, and it's just the way Zidane interpreted the three five two when he played it like against Sevilla and like the Copa del Rey uh, in the second leg, I think it was, or it was the uh, the league against uh, Sevilla. I think, it, yeah, okay, yeah. It was he interpreted as like, oh, we have wing backs, so all we're gonna do now is just cross all the time, and it certainly helps aid that. But there are a lot more things you can do within that formation, and we never really maximized it. And I'm not sure our personnel understands it. Like, we need a full preseason, like, going through that formation in Zidane, like, understanding how to best maximize it. Um, but the 3-4-3 is completely out of the question because it's an extremely unique formation in that it requires a double pivot of two very, very unique central midfielders because essentially you're outnumbered in midfield when you play that formation because it's three defenders, two central midfielders, two wing backs, and three forwards. 
So you need not only two, you know, central midfielders that can pass fairly well, but like their stamina is off the charts. Uh, they can, they can both like they can win the ball back really well. And the reason Conte was able to win the title with it was because he had Matic and Conte in that role, who are basically two of the only players who can really play that position. And then once Matic left, Conte has sort of reverted to a three-five-two with Hazard playing up top. Because he he realized that the three four three isn't really going to work anymore with, without having Matic. And if Conte had left, it would have been the same deal. And I look at our squad, and I don't see anyone who's even remotely like those two players. So it it wouldn't be viable to me at all. I mean, if if we did a scheme like that, Casemiro couldn't exist for sure, and Marcos Llorente couldn't exist. Yeah, but I mean, like, Cas- for, yeah. For sure, Casemiro just can't be in this kind of formation. Like yeah, anywhere Casemiro on the pitch. Has the, Casemiro has the athleticism, right? He's possibly the only player who has the athleticism to deal with it, but he could not handle the 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 duties of, of needing to like basically distribute to one side of the pitch at the level that he needed to. And it would be it would be unfair to play him in that position, just as it's unfair to play him as a libero. And Llorente wouldn't be able to do it because he doesn't have the athleticism to do it. I mean, he's a very clever player. But he's simply not like fast enough, and like has that much stamina, especially as young as he is, like to to to, to play that role, right? Like it just it basically only fit Conte's side with Matic and Conte. It doesn't doesn't really. There's really no other side in world football I think that could really do that again. I think Kovacic could do it. Yeah, possibly, but I also. Yeah, he possibly could do it, but I'm not sure he just has enough of the raw ball-winning capabilities to truly, truly, like, succeed in that role. Mm, no, I think, I honestly do think it could work. I think we'll never see it for obvious reasons, but also because Zidane would never sacrifice an attacking player to, I mean, sh- to shoehorn this scheme. Do you know what I mean? Because you'd have to you have to put an extra central defender, which means you have to take a pawn away from somewhere else. I mean, yeah, we'd take it from the midfield and yeah. and Zidane would never take Casemiro off, right? Like so that just kind of destroys it like right there. I just I think like if you and I even like sat down and like with a big bristle board and pen and paper and started drawing arrows and circles, we could probably make it work with this Real Madrid team. I think we have such terrifying nightmares of it and like the ironic thing is, if you look at that game in Wembley early this season against Tottenham, when we did it for the second half... The 3-5, oh, that was a disaster. Yeah. You know, a 3-5-2 is supposed to actually... Like, defensive def- defense on the flanks is supposed to be one of your tr- strong suits. In the- it was horrible. It was the exact opposite somehow. We we managed to flip the 3-5-2 into... Uh, and make this what is supposed to be the strongest point, its weakest point. And our transition defense and our wing, the flanks and behind at traffic was a nightmare. Yeah, uh, I mean, like, I think the three-five-two can work, right? Because, like, we did it last season when, because um, when we didn't transition Casemiro to a liberal, it worked all right in terms of the defensive aspect. But the three-four-three for me would would not work. I mean, you could possibly, with really, really rigorous tactics, make it somewhat viable but i don't even see what the point is then because it's obviously not the optimal solution last patron question is from nick de stefani uh and he says even though the end score was undesirable along with unnecessary yellow cards of don sergio ramos 
I still think this team is trending in the right direction. We seem to have urgency and better ball movement in the offensive end. Uh, and we got another clean sheet. And to me, we seem more cohesive in general and are just an ingredient away from dominating games again. What do you think that ingredient is? Is it Bale? Is it who comes out? Um, by the way, I thought Luca was on another level today as well. Uh, what do you think about going back to more traditional 4-3-3? Thanks for everything, Hala Madrid. This Nick Stefano guy is just an absolute gem of a person. Just <laughs> love his optimist, love his optimism, love his support over the years. Uh, he's been a patron since day one. Always just like these awesome positive messages. Um, there was definitely a period like after the Asensio Golasso against Las Palmas, and yeah, uh, and some things that were encouraging against Atleti and Apoel. Even though it was oh Apple my god, well. Apple was gong show. I, I think there were definitely signs that were encouraging. There were some people who um, tweeted at me and said that we dominated Bilbao in this game, and I really didn't feel that way at all. Like yeah. I'm usually a half glass full type of guy. I really thought that this there were a lot of alarm bells in this game. I'm not sure how many positives I actually did pull out of it, but um, do you at least see any encouraging signs? Like, do you want to to spin this a bit? I mean, I saw encouraging signs like from the games you mentioned, but from this game, no. This game depressed me a lot because um, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't necessarily see that. I think I saw urgency. I think this team always has urgency in people. Like, I mean, I don't know why people really pick on that. Like, it, to me, always talking about urgency, like, oh, they don't have enough urgency, is kind of a lazy argument because it's really hard to read, and that's rarely ever a problem for like professionals like the, these guys. I think complacency. You know, sort of, you know, we discussed at the beginning of the season, right? Like complacency was an issue. But at this point in time, like everyone looks urgent. No one wants to lose anymore. They they understand what the stakes are. I I didn't feel like, so yeah, I thought I thought urgency was there, but I, I didn't necessarily see any cohesion. In fact, like we were discussing that like the lack of cohesion was one of the biggest problems. And I don't know if we're one ingredient away from dominating games again because I think there's a lot of tactical, you know, tidbits that Zidane needs to go through. But when um, Nick suggests Bale, I think he's like the one guy that could be, that could solve a lot of things because of how he changes the structure of the team when he comes back. Because when he comes back, we move to the suggested 4-3-3 and that kind of eliminates the whole Isco thing. And we generally press better in a 4-3-3. Again, it's not a guaranteed because we've seen Zidane not press well in that. But generally, we do, and our structure looks sort of better. Though the whole central penetration thing is still a problem. Um, so I think Bale would help in a lot of ways. He, I mean, he's a quality player. Like, just his individual quality would help us a lot. Um, but, yeah, there's no... Obviously, there's no one one solution to, to the current predicament that we're in. Uh Honestly, I think Bale solves a lot of problems. Um, obviously, by default, structurally, like you said, he solves problems. Uh, people often, like, never, no one talks about his IQ. He's a very smart footballer. Um, he helps defensively. He's good with the press. He knows, like, you know, when to press, when not to, when to, you know, when to just kind of hedge back, being cohesive with the others. Defensively, he's really good. He's, you know, he's in shape um, when he's healthy. He can score goals. You know, right now the crossing pandemic is not just the fact that we're putting in 10 million crosses. It's the fact that the crosses are also bad. Mm-hmm. He's one of the most underrated crossers, I think, 
um, his crossing is at an elite level and no one really talks about that. To me, he solves almost like every problem we have right now. Um, I just, it just sucks because none of us like have any, like my, my confidence in Bale being healthy and I'm one of the more optimistic people I think. It's just completely shot. Like I feel like it's someone like took that confidence and buried it underneath the earth. I have no idea what it means when he's, it's a precaution when he's not there. I, to me, that could mean anything. It could mean Yeah, we've heard, that, we've heard that so many times. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, well, then a month passes and he's not back. Because I thought he was taken off to be ready for the Athletic Bilbao game. If I'm, if I'm, or if I'm mistaken, then it was for the game after this. But, but that doesn't even make sense to me. Yeah, like, yeah. Because he played. Like, he played just the game before that. Like, how can it be a precaution when he already played? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so I... I, I mean, I could be wrong, right? It's like, I'm not a medical expert here, and I can't, like... Real Madrid, obviously, have given out really um, limited information for, for good reason. So maybe it's really a precaution, but I'm, I'm starting to have, like, that sinking feeling again that, like, he's got another injury, and it sucks because, like you said, he can... I mean, I don't know if I'm as optimistic as you about, like, Bale solving that many things, but no one can deny that he comes in, we, we look a lot better with a consistent, you know, consi- consistently healthy bail on this side. Um, Nick's point about Modric, he had, I mean, he only had one key pass, but five dribbles. Um, I think he was dispossessed a couple times. I don't know, did he stick out to you at least? He didn't, but I thought he did well in the context of the situation, right? Because he was constantly trying to adapt to a constantly changing structure. And I thought, he, I thought he did as well as anyone could have in that circumstance. And I don't think he necessarily did any better than cross, but yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that like worse players would have probably looked a lot more lost than, than Modric and cross would have, you know, in the circumstances that they were in. He also had uh, three interceptions um, as always, high you know ninety plus passing percentage. He wasn't. He didn't have as many touches as Kroos, and wasn't as involved in the play as Kroos was. And I think, I think if Modric is in your team, you need to make him some kind of focal point. Again, like him and Carvajal had some nice link up, um, and we didn't see it enough, in my opinion. But, um, last question. Is actually not from a patron. It's from at Port Valles on Twitter. He says, "Does Keon still think we're going to win the treble?" I have to. <laughs> I can't. I can't backtrack on a prediction. That's just weak. So I have to say it. I'll say this: historically, Real Madrid have never, ever, ever. Um, although they have in like rare occasions, they've never needed to be good domestically in order to win the Champions League. It's never been correlated. It's never. Like, last year we did it, but, you know, if you go back throughout the years, there's definitely been a lot of years where we've been actually literally terrible in the league and still won the Champions League. Even in the even in our, like, 1950s, 60s dream team, we didn't win the league. Um, I think we, we won the league. I, I could be wrong on this. I think we won the league two years out of the five times we won the Champions League, or maybe it was three. 
But, like, there's a precedent going all the way, like, back to the end of us not winning them at the same time, which is why we've, like, never won a treble in our history. So, like, any time Keon says this is going to be a super bold prediction because we've never done it before. Like, so I I honestly think you picked, like, probably the best time you could have to say we we would win the treble considering how we were going into this season. Um, Yeah, so I wouldn't backtrack it backtrack on it either if i made that prediction um uh when you did yeah i mean and that the point is too that this it was literally the definition of the prediction is a bold prediction because it's a 442 article i write before <laughs> the season i i call it bold predictions for the season and you know it's not like a it's not like a kind of prediction i'd put money on but it's just something bold one of my one of mine you know i think a couple of them come true including one that no one thought would come true was Ancelotti to- sacked. yeah i i didn't see that yeah I think you actually called me out on it. I sh- I forgot to talk to you about that. You called I, me out on that prediction. It's the one that came I true. Call, I called you out also on this Arsenal one where you talked about how Arsenal uh, were actually really good or something, and like Ozil was going to continue his scoring form. Like I I'm I can't believe I'm still hearing about this. This is like <laughs> that completely was justified at the time because Arsenal were flying at the time of. Okay, I, but I I showed you the shot numbers from Ozil, and I told you this wasn't sustainable, and then like. For some reason, you had so much faith in Arsenal that the, the, the golden rule in football is to never have faith in Arsenal. They will <laughs> always slip up. They will always slip up. Um, it's true. No, I think this was the first year, like maybe my whole life, where I, I completely just detached myself from, from getting excited about Arsenal. Um, I Because, I, I you know, growing up, like you've seen, especially like, like we, we knew they were definitely good, like during the Henri era. but. Yeah. Like even in the post Henri era, we we saw them have so much bad luck. Like in the Barcelona, the Champions League referee decisions that were just shocking going against them. I mean, you're like, okay, at some point this has to normalize. They'll finally come good. And then last year they were doing so well, like in the first couple months. And then they had their famous November slump, I think it is. And then and then they just and then now now <laughs> they're just a complete disaster. If you ask me, can you? <laughs> um, to your to your point about the league uh, in the 50s. So uh, I have it up here now. So it's actually better than you anticipated. Okay. We won the double in 55. Sorry, we won the double in 56, 57, 57, 58. Well, those two years, actually. So two out of five, I think we won the double. So maybe you were right, yeah. Did we? Did we? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I was. So we won the league two out of... And don't... By the way, we consider this, right, like, the best period ever. And I'm not saying we shouldn't consider it the best period ever, but, mm-hmm. like, it just kind of shows how it's just been a thing for us. Like, I don't I don't know if there's really a reason for it, but it, it, it shows how difficult it is to win both at the same time. People were... I remember us getting questions about it during the summer. Is this team better than D7's team? And I don't think even even as high as we were flying, like... You can't until you win five in a row. I don't think you can. <laughs> I mean, if if we won, like, let's say, three Champions Leagues, and if we won the treble this season, I think that would be a valid argument because, you know, there is the whole, like, football has gotten tougher. Like, the Champions League is I mean, tougher. Yeah. I mean, there, there wasn't as many opponents back then, too. Yeah, and I mean, if we did that, then yes. But, like, I'm pretty sure that's not happening this time in, like... It, it was always going to be a long shot. Like it, 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 it doesn't mean that you are up, your your team has a bad legacy if they don't live up to Di Stefano's because basically no other team 
you know, is ever going to live up to that or has, you know, maybe maybe like 100 years down the line. But that's a pretty hard bar to meet. Do you still think Marcelo passed Roberto Carlos? Yes, I still think I still think so. And I've thought that for a long time now. And I, I don't think that really changes. Um, I'm really, I, think, I find it actually interesting that people feel so strongly about it. Like, I, I like it's like, not even like that he may have. Like, he has like absolutely surpassed him. Like, that part is kind of weird to me. I don't. Because, like, I don't know, what people kind of, I, I I have this thing, right, like, when people talk about older footballers, and, like, there's this, just this massive resistance to, like, accepting that. Yeah, because there's a lot of nostalgia involved. Yeah, naturally, naturally, newer footballers are going to be better. For me, it's because, in my opinion, Marcelo has, as, as, like, celebrated as he is, I still don't think he's recognized enough for just how good he is, like, offensively, like, you know, we accept that he's good. I don't think we accept that generationally he is an insanely good talent. Like he's arguably the best of of you know the best left back in his generation. He's very and, unique. He's very unique. Like he's like, not. He, like I think in many ways he's changed changed the way how left backs can play. Like like what we're like the definition of a wing back, like a good one, strong yeah. defensively. Uh, provides good, you know, overloads and attack. This guy, he, he kind of flipped that in his head, and he, he, his brain and creativity and his dribbling, and I don't remember any left back playing that way in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, are we done? I think we're done. Yeah. Just over an hour. Oh, yeah, quite a bit over now. Okay. Well, I mean, to be fair, we did have a lot to talk about. We didn't ramble that much. I don't think. Um. Are you? What are your thoughts on Derrick Rose? Derrick Rose, um, it's it's disappointing, right? Like, because he's kind of in a bail situation. Um, um, he's way worse than bail situation. Okay, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just trying to make an analogy for like the uh, the the listeners who probably don't know basketball. Um, I think to me the bail uh, parallel would be Joel Embiid, even though that's not even that accurate. But I think that's the best parallel I can think of. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, my friend. Um, Enjoy the rest of your night, and uh, we'll chat soon. For those of you listening, Gabe and I should be... Gabe should be back. By the way, Gabe was away. Bit under the weather today. Uh, He should be back for Wednesday's bonus pod for our patrons. If you want access to that... um, Wait, are we playing Dortmund this week? Uh... (laughs) I love how we're both scrambling to look yes, this up. Yes, right Wednesday now. we're playing yeah. them. Uh, that means that podcast will actually be a recap of the game against Dortmund. So if you want access to that and all future podcasts, midweek podcasts, just become a patron. A dollar a month is all you need to do. Uh, pledge to get access to that. Um, and Gabe and I will be there for that one. And Om probably back on Sunday. In the meantime, check out Managing Madrid. A lot of content coming your way. Um, and until next time, Hala Madrid. All of Madrid. Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. 
That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions.